The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And from this light, God created life on earth. And man was given dominion over all things upon this earth and the power to choose between good and evil. But each sought to do his own will because he knew not the light of God's law. Man took dominion over man. The conquered were made to serve the conqueror. The weak were made to serve the strong, and freedom was gone from the world. So did the Egyptians cause the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and their lives were made bitter with hard bondage, and their cry came up unto God. And God heard them. And cast into Egypt into the lowly hut of Amram and Yoshebel, the seed of a man upon whose mind and heart would be written God's law, and God's commandments. One man to stand alone against an empire. Now, to some of you, this quote may sound somewhat familiar, uh, and to others, even though the biblical language might ring a bell, uh, you have no idea where this comes from. This quote is a narration that comes at the beginning of a movie that was released in 1956. And it quickly became a cultural phenomenon. If it was released today, figuring in for inflation, of course, it would make $1.18 billion in the U.S. alone. And that's even more than Avengers Endgame made in the U.S., uh, the highest grossing film of all time. The film that I'm talking about is The Ten Commandments. Now, personally, I've seen The Ten Commandments at least Uh, 10 times over the course of my life, and that's probably an underestimate. That doesn't necessarily mean I chose to watch it that many times, but it does mean that if my parents told me to sit down and watch a movie about the Bible, I sat down and I watched a movie about the Bible over and over. Uh, The Ten Commandments, as you may know, uh, is the story of Moses and the Exodus or the mass migration of the people of Israel from Egypt to the Promised Land, which, of course, drew much of its inspiration from the book of Exodus. Now, as a kid, I remember hearing and reading the story of Exodus, or of the Exodus, but especially after watching the Ten Commandments over and over, I would ask myself, how did the Hebrew slaves even get there? You know, where did they come from? Now, those questions find their answers in our text today, Genesis 46 and 47. Since resuming our Genesis series at the beginning of the summer, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers uh, who told their father Jacob that he had been killed. Uh, He was transported to Egypt uh, where he was imprisoned after being falsely accused of attempted rape. Uh, After learning that Jacob has a gift of interpreting dreams, Pharaoh promoted him from a prisoner in the cell to the second in command of all Egypt. And years later, Widespread famine hit the land, causing Joseph's brothers 
uh, to come to Egypt from Canaan in search of food. Uh, following a series of back and forths with his brothers, an unrecognizable Joseph, due to the fact that he had aged, and at this point he was decked out in full Egyptian regalia and, and makeup, reveals himself to his brothers, forgives them, and tells them to go back to Canaan to bring back Jacob and their entire families with them to Egypt so that he can be reunited with him and be saved from the famine. And that brings us to chapter 46, verse 1. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. And Lord, I pray that the words that I speak um, are coming from you, that they will come from you. Uh, I pray that all the preparation that uh, you've allowed me to do, Lord, is, uh, is, uh, is it's faithful to your word and that what uh, my brothers and sisters hear um, are your thoughts, your truth, um, and not uh, my gleanings and my understanding. And that ultimately you convict and that you save um, according to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So verse 1 of chapter 46 says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. So when Jacob receives the news that Joseph is alive, it says at the end of chapter 45 that his heart became numb. He couldn't believe it. But as the scripture says, he took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. He came to Beersheba. Not straight to Egypt, to Joseph. So you mean to tell me, Jacob, that you have just received one of the most shocking pieces of news that you will ever hear in your entire life. And instead of making a beeline toward your son, your beloved son, your once thought to be dead son. You don't head straight to him, but you stop somewhere else first. Do you know where the phrase make a beeline for it comes from? According to the phrase finder, the phrase derives from the behavior of bees. So when a forager bee finds a source of nectar, it returns to the hive and communicates its location to the other bees using a display called the waggle dance. The other bees are then able to fly directly to the source of the nectar, that is, make a beeline for it. Joseph's brothers are the forager bees. They come to Jacob with good news. That's the waggle dance about, about Joseph. That's the nectar. But unlike bees in search of nectar, Jacob does not rush directly to Joseph. Instead, goes somewhere else first. In the movie Castaway, for four years, Chuck, who gets stranded on an island after a plane crash, is thought to be dead. His family and friends have a funeral for him and everything. Days went by and they cried. Weeks went by and they mourned. Months went by and they grieved. Years went by and they eventually moved on. They included Chuck's girlfriend, Kelly, who was now married with a young daughter. 
Eventually, Chuck is rescued by a cargo ship after being found floating in the ocean on a raft, and he's taken home. And just like Jacob, when Kelly receives the news that Chuck is alive, her heart became numb, so much to the point that she actually passed away. Not passed away, but she passed out, right? Now, you would think that Jacob would have a similar response, The only thing that stopped Kelly from making a beeline to Chuck right away was her husband who didn't think that it was a good idea for her to see him. That's the reaction you would think Jacob would have. My son is alive, my precious Joseph. The one who I cried and mourned and grieved over is not dead. Hurry up, everyone. Let's go to Egypt right now. Joseph is alive. Let's just make a quick stop to Beersheba first, though. It doesn't make any sense. Maybe there's something in the next half of the verse that will give us some more context as to why he did this. The verse goes on to say that Israel came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, there are a couple of ways to think about this action that Jacob uh, took. First, uh, let's figure out why he went to Beersheba uh, specifically and why it was so important for him uh, to go there at this particular point. Uh, Beersheba was a city just on the border of Canaan. Uh, In 2 Samuel 24, David instructs Joab to take a census of Israel uh, and Judah, and he says, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people. The phrase from Dan to Beersheba is to say, the northernmost part to the southernmost part, or the northern border to the southern border. Another way of saying the whole nation or the whole country. That's north, northwest angle Minnesota for us to uh, Key West, Florida. That's, that's the equivalent. Now, as Jacob and his clan moved from Hebron and Canaan, they should have moved east to head straight to Egypt, but they went a little south to stop at Beersheba. Now, I had a map for this, but when I put it up this morning, the points were kind of small to see, so you're going to have to rely on my my hands to give you some direction here, okay? So this is, let's say this is Hebron, where they started in Canaan. They have to go here to Goshen in Egypt. So it's just east. Is that east for you guys, or am I the other way? Okay, that's east. Good, okay. So now, Beersheba is here. Normally, if you get news like this, you would head straight to Goshen, Correct? That's not what they do. They come down to Beersheba. So it's out of the way. So not only is it a detour, but the path between Hebron and, and, um, and Egypt is mostly flat um, and it's, uh, you know, plains and things like that. To get to Beersheba, there's mountains. So not only is it a detour, but it's a mountainous terrain-like detour. So, again, why would Jacob go to this place at this point? Now, if we take a look back to Jacob's grandfather and father, and even back to Jacob's uh, earlier life, we can make a little more sense of his decision here. Now, Jacob would have definitely been very familiar with Beersheba. It means the well of the oath, and initially gets its name from Abraham, Uh, Jacob's grandfather, through an encounter he had with the Philistine king, Abimelech, 
and Genesis 21. During that encounter, Abraham and the king made two oaths between one another. Abraham swore that he would not deal falsely with the king, meaning that he would not seek his harm. And the king swore to honor Abraham's purchase of a well. Now, Abraham called that well Beersheba. Soon after this, Abraham was tested by God in the near sacrifice of Isaac. And in Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord tells Abraham this. I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So years later, Abraham has died now, and, and now Isaac, his son, is a grown man. The oath between the Philistines and, and um, Abraham has been forgotten, and we see evidence of this in Genesis 26. It says, Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug up in the days of Abraham his father. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. From there, he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So God gave Abraham a promise, and then reaffirms the same promise to Isaac. And just like with Abraham, Abimelech, but this time a different one though, desires to make an oath with Isaac to keep the peace between them. So Abimelech, together with his advisor and the commander of his army, say to Isaac in Genesis 26, 28-33, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. And let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Jacob heard of his grandfather Abraham's experience in Beersheba. He knew of his father Isaac's experience there, too. He would have known that they made oaths to kings there. He would have known that God made promises to bless and multiply their offspring there. Not only that, but Jacob had his own encounters with God, and God has spoken these same words to him. In Genesis 28, when Jacob dreams about the ladder between heaven and earth, God says this to him. 
I am the Lord, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This is what God had told Abraham and Isaac, and now Jacob. Jacob makes a beeline to Beersheba before going to Egypt because he knows that's where the nectar is. This is where God has made oaths to my forefathers, and this is where my forefathers made pacts of peace with kings. Remember, Jacob is uprooting his entire family, 66 people in all, not including his son's wives. In the midst of a severe famine, to go to a strange place and to a foreign king that he does not know. Even though everything in him wants to see Joseph as quickly as he can, whom he thought had died but was actually alive, the desire to worship and be reaffirmed of his promise, of God's promise to him and protection of him and his people was greater. Now verse 1 of chapter 46 says that when he arrived to Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father. He worshiped God in Beersheba before heading off on his journey. What is the first step you take when faced with a major decision? I'm talking about the kinds of decisions that can uproot your entire life or have a lasting impact on you or your family. The type of decisions that are plagued with uncertainty, with fear and with doubt. Where do you go first for those things? Who do you go to? If the answer is anything other than God, then you have given that person, place, or thing that you run to first a position and importance that only God should have. But you can't only come to God first. You have to wait on him for an answer. Look at what verse 2 says. It says, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. Now, let's think about this for a second. So Jacob got to Beersheba and then offered sacrifices. He worshiped God. He sought his face. But God spoke to him in visions of the night in his dreams while he slept. So Jacob had to be awake to offer sacrifices. So that means that some time would have had to have passed between him worshiping and going to sleep. So Jacob comes to God, worship him worships him, rests in his presence. And then God speaks to him saying, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I also will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. While Jacob is resting in God's presence, God reaffirms his promises to Jacob and assures him, that he is with him and will be with him until the end of his life. But watch this. The first word of verse five. What's that word? The first word. What is it? What, what, what is it? Then. Then. Then at that point, 
After all of that, then he set out from Beersheba. It is not enough that we come to God first, but we must also wait on him. We must come to him worshipfully, sacrificially, not having our minds made up, fully resting in his presence. And he will give to us what he gave Jacob himself. God will give us himself because uncertainty, fear and doubt are all conquered by hope, courage and faith which all come from God. We probably won't have the experience that Jacob had where God spoke to him in a dream, but we have the word. We have godly counsel and we have the fellowship of the saints. We have all these means that God uses to speak to us. And then we can set out from Beersheba. Notice it doesn't say Jacob continued on to Egypt. It says he set out from Beersheba. And I think it says this because it draws the attention away from where Jacob is going to where God is leading Jacob from. So Jacob's destination is not as important as the fact that he's going there with God. God wants us to set out with him and he will define our path and guide us to this destination for us. So Jacob, Israel, sets out from Beersheba and eventually reaches Goshen. Verses 28 to 30 capture Jacob and Joseph's long-awaited reunion, and it's, it's as emotional and heartwarming as you would think and you could ever imagine. They fall into each other's uh, arms and they weep together. But almost immediately afterward, though, Joseph begins to explain to his father and brothers what will happen when they meet Pharaoh and how they are to address him. He says this in uh, chapter 46, 31 to 34. I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that we may dwell in the land of Goshen. In order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, chapter 47 starts off with verses 1 to 4, with Joseph saying and doing exactly what he just said he would do. And then Pharaoh responds by saying, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among you, put them in charge of my livestock. So there are a couple of important points to pull out of these passages here. Firstly, Joseph must be so connected to Pharaoh, the king, to know exactly how to address him and exactly how he will respond. It's almost as if they have one mind. Secondly, Joseph initiates the address to Pharaoh, and then his brothers follow. Thirdly, Joseph is intentional in saying that my brothers and my father's household have come to me, which means he is claiming responsibility for them, and he's expressing his desire for them to, to be there. They did not come on their own. They came because I invited them. 
This point is emphasized more in Pharaoh's response when he says, your father and your brothers have come to you. He didn't say they have come to Egypt. Lastly, Pharaoh allows them to settle in the best of the land and even puts them in charge of his livestock, even though he knows that they, being shepherds, are an abomination to the Egyptians. If he is doing all of this for a group of people he considers to be an abomination, the only logical conclusion is that he is doing it for Joseph's sake and not theirs. During this series, we've been pointing out the many similarities between Joseph and Jesus, and in this case, it's no different. Jesus and God, the Father, have one mind. Jesus addresses the Father on our behalf, and we are heard by God through Jesus. Jesus gives life. He is the one who says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If we receive salvation, it is only because we came to Christ. We are born in sin and shaped in iniquity and altogether an abomination to God. But it is only through Christ that God is able to see us as righteous. Not only that, but God allows us to experience joy and peace and grace and mercy and favor here on earth and in the paradise of heaven through and because of Jesus. Genesis 47, 27 says, Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Jacob was 130 years old when he came into Egypt. Even at that point, he was weak and his health was declining. Back in chapter 46, it says that his sons, that the sons of Jacob carried Jacob, their wives and children in, in wagons. Also remember that he walked with a limp or some kind of uh, shuffle because of his hip uh, being injured from wrestling with God. After arriving in Goshen, God gave him another 17 years to catch up with Joseph, to get to know his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh and to see his children loving each other, all the while enjoying the best, most fertile, and green land in all of Egypt. Joseph was with Jacob for 17 years before being sold into slavery, and Joseph was with Jacob for the last 17 years of his life. He was already weak when he came to, to Goshen, but 17 years later, he's even more frail at this point. And the verse goes on to say, and when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Jacob must have reflected back to his father Isaac and how he deceived him in his vulnerable state into blessing him instead of his brother Esau. Now Jacob finds himself in a similar predicament trusting that his son will deal kindly and truly with him in his vulnerable state. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Jacob could trust that Joseph would deal kindly and truly with him and bring him into the promised land after he died. 
Much in the same way that we as believers can trust that when we close our eyes for the final time, there will be darkness for a moment. But then we will be welcomed into the marvelous light of Christ in eternity. Death is the final test of faith. Not so much death itself, but the moments leading up to it. For believers, even though we may struggle with fear in that moment, those moments will be peaceful because we know what is to come. For those who don't know Christ, who don't know him as Lord and Savior, who've never submitted to him in this life, death will come for them as well. Just like it did for Jacob. Just as it does for all of us. It is the one dreadful thing that unites us all, regardless of race or religion, class or economic standing. When you close your eyes for the final time, unbeliever, darkness will consume you. And moments later, it will continue to consume you. Yet, you will also experience eternal life, but one that is devoid of life and light and the presence of God. All you will know is pain and suffering and torment eternally. Turn to Christ and cry out to him. He alone can save you. As I began to prepare this sermon a couple of months ago, I, I had a vision of how it would go and how I would execute it. And uh, there are a couple of people here that have prepared sermons before, so you'll know exactly what I'm uh, you know, going to be talking about when I, when I say this. But I thought I'd be going in one direction and... I feel like God moved me in a different, you know, a different place. Now, usually when somebody says this in a pulpit and the pastor's, you know, not in the pulpit and sitting there, he might get a little nervous. But it's okay. There's no need to be nervous. It's, I think, I think it's going to be all right. Okay. Um, so yesterday I went to a library around my way to work on this sermon. And a couple of hours into me being there, uh, a man and his wife, who I could tell were from the Middle East because uh, of their accents, uh, sat next to me. His wife had come to use a computer at the library to scan something, I believe it was, and he came along with her. So as he sat next to me, he noticed a book that appeared to be a Bible uh, was in front of me. And so I'm facing the laptop this way, and I'm, you know, just typing away. And he comes from to the side of me, and I can kind of see him in my, in my peripheral vision. And he says, excuse me, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but are you reading the Bible? I said, yes, I am. He said, do you believe in the Bible? So at this point, my antennas go up, because I think this, this might be sparking some kind, of, some kind of debate going on or something like that. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm all for that, but, you know, I'm trying to prepare the sermon. And um, <laughs> um, so I, I replied to him, yes, I believe in the Bible. I'm, I'm a Christian. Um, he said, brother, I am a Christian, too. What are you reading? So I told him I was actually preparing a sermon about Jacob coming from Canaan to Goshen and Egypt and being reunited with Joseph. And he said, I'm from Egypt. I said, okay, okay. So then he goes on to tell me how Christianity has a long history in Egypt, but people would never think that. He asked me if I knew what was happening to Christians in the Middle East. And so I told him that I've heard over the years that they're being persecuted. And he went on to tell me how the persecution is so much worse than I could ever imagine and that there are Christians, Christians dying at the hands of Muslims every day. In Egypt, you are required to put your religious affiliation on your ID. Uh, 
Um, many Christians put Muslim on their ID for the fear of persecution or death. The man, uh, his name is Paul, and his wife Lillian, asked me to keep them in prayer as they, as they traveled back and forth uh, to Egypt often. Um, and with his eyes looking at me, almost bulging, as just staring into my soul almost, he says, don't forget us, brother. Always think of the Christians in Egypt. And as Paul and Lillian left, I told them that our church would pray for them. So as you can imagine, this encounter stunned me. Here I am working on a sermon about Egypt, and a Christian man and a woman from Egypt happened to sit right next to me at the library. And Paul revealed to me that he is actually from Cairo. And um, I happened to ask him during a conversation, hey, do you know where, where modern-day Goshen would be? He's like, I'm not really sure, but if you check out an old map and compare it to a new one, you might be able to figure it out. So I did. And it turns out Cairo is just in the southernmost part of modern-day Goshen. And what did that experience teach me? Or what do I feel God was trying to tell me in that moment? At the beginning of the sermon, I talked about the Exodus and how we would see uh, these chapters, in these chapters, how Israel came into Goshen, which we, which we saw, which we uh, read, uh, where they would later be enslaved and then freed over 400 years later. Neither, jo- I'm sorry, neither Jacob nor Joseph or his brothers knew how God would bring about the promises he made to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. They all died and never saw the promise fulfilled. When Israel was in bondage, many may have thought that the promise was dead, but it wasn't. God raised Moses to lead his people out of, the, out of bondage, but he never saw the promise fulfilled either. Saul didn't see it fulfilled. David didn't see it fulfilled. Solomon never saw it fulfilled. They all played the part that God gave them in his story, but never saw the promise fulfilled. That is because the promise was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. The promise lived a perfect, sinless life. The promise was falsely accused. The promise was hung on a cross. The promise took on the sins of his people. The promise died and three days later rose again in glory. The promise is seated at the right hand of God. The promise is fulfilled in Jesus. If we are in Christ, we are part of the promise. Paul and Lillian are part of the promise. It started in their part of the world, but it didn't stay there. The sovereignty of God took it out into the ends of the world and right back to where they are. So that Paul, in a library in Levittown, can call me brother a brother in Christ. Today, we will be witnessing baptisms, another fulfillment of the promise. Let us praise God for these lives that he saved and also for the freedom we have to engage in such a public expression of faith, unlike our brothers and sisters in Egypt and elsewhere in the world. Thank God for Jacob. Thank God for Joseph. But all glory be to Jesus Christ, the King. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for your truth. We thank you that uh, we have the freedom to assemble, to come together regularly without uh, the fear of persecution or death like a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world. And Lord, I pray uh, that you would 
keep them on our hearts, Father God. Lord, I just thank you for this truth that you've uh, that you shared with us today. Um, that your sovereignty brought Israel into Goshen, and then from Goshen they would be enslaved, Lord Father God. But it wouldn't end there, and all of the things that you would take Israel through, it would all lead to Christ. And Lord, we just thank you for your sovereignty um, in, 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 the, in the lives of your people, in our lives, Father. Help, I pray that you help us to trust in that sovereignty, God, um, in all of our circumstances. And Father, I just pray for this, uh, for this church and for all these visitors here. Lord, I pray that you would um, help their churches and the families that they belong to and everything as, as well. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.